Well, I want to call your attention to a couple of things before we uh, get to the message. First of all, let me remind you of our new communication strategy. And so when you came in this morning, you should have received a card. On the one side is our series. On the other side, you'll find the top five for the week. The top five are the big announcements for the week. Once a month, we will print a monthly. And the monthly pretty much takes the place of the weekly bulletin because the weekly bulletin often had lots of repeat announcements. So you can pick one of those up the beginning of each month. That'll last for a month. The top five will give you the top five things for that particular week. We encourage you, after you uh, mark your calendars, get things in shape for your week, you then take that card and use it as, a, as an invitation to someone, showing them or show, telling them what's going on at Calvary on the one side and inviting them to come Sunday mornings to celebrate with us. You also should have received an email on Monday. Let me ask, how many of you got an email from Calvary Church on Monday? Raise your hand. All right, good. If you did not receive an email, that means we do not have your email address. So please fill out a Next Steps card, put your name and email on it, drop it at the hub or in the Next Steps space, and then you'll be on the email list. That's a little bit of a, of a difference from in the past. Before we mailed that out on Fridays, and you had to sign up in order to get it. Now we're kind of reversing that. If we have your email, you will receive it unless you unsubscribe. But don't unsubscribe. This way you know what's going on. Also, we invite you to visit our new website. Uh, the website's great, much more intuitive. And so again, our goal in the new communication strategies, not to remove information, but actually to give you access to more information. And we wanted to do that in ways that were more beneficial to larger groups of people. If you're hitting a snag or it's not working for you, you can stop at the next step space or the hub and see if we can tweak that in some way. Also, uh, if you're visiting with us, you're new this morning or you've been new but haven't filled out a Next Steps card, we invite you to do that. Take that back to the Next Steps space, drop it off there, and that way you can start a conversation. They'll be able to show you or tell you what your next step may be to get connected here at Calvary Church. And again, take your, next, or take your card you received when you came in and use that as a mechanism for inviting someone to join you. Well, we're at the front end of a series that we're calling I Believe, and we're kind of working our way through some of the main beliefs of Christianity. Now, just to clear up any uh, possible uh, discrepancies, we're not looking at denominational distinctives. We're not looking at your idiosyncratic weirdness about how you're reading some passage or verse. We're looking at things that the Bible says clearly and that Christians through the centuries and around the world believe in common. And so some of you are familiar with absolutes, convictions, and preferences. We've talked about them before. Absolutes are those things that are clearly and regularly taught in the Bible. And those things have been believed by Christians through the ages and by Christians across denominational lines. Convictions are human constructions. So how do we put some of the data together in ways that would be more distinctive? Preferences are things that you like. This series is going to focus on the absolutes. Some things clearly and regularly taught and things that are believe, believed by Christians through history and around the world. Well, this morning, as I said, we come to the topic of the Bible. I believe the Bible. And the Bible really is the center for our Christian faith. It's in the Bible that we find out who God is, what he expects of us, who we are, how we're built, the solution to our problem, and the definition of that problem. 
And so the Bible really is something that we need to wrestle with and put together. We're going to look at three themes as it relates to the Bible. Again, a giant topic. We're going to break it down into three pieces. We're going to look at reliability. We're going to look at authority and purpose. Is the Bible trustworthy, reliable? Does the Bible have authority? What role should it play in my life? And what's the purpose of the Bible? Why was the Bible given to us and what does God expect? Well, let's jump in and first of all talk about reliability. Now, there are lots of people that have written, you know, giant books and have spent a lot of time wrestling with reliability. Um, for example, you can read Lee Strobel. He's written The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. Um, Tim Keller's written The Reason for God. So I want to take a few minutes and just show you how some of those authors wrestle with and work through the reliability question. If you want to read more about it, you can pick up those resources or others. But let me give you a flavor of what they're trying to do. The first few verses of Luke are a good place to start. And usually if you pick up an author, and that author's talking about truthfulness of Scripture, the historicity of Scripture, the reliability, they're often going to talk about the first few chapters, or the first few verses of Luke. Here we go. Luke is authoring this gospel, this life of Jesus, and here's how he begins. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Well, let me just uh, point out a couple of things in Luke's introduction. First of all, Luke was commissioned to do this research. He was commissioned by a guy named Theophilus. Now, we don't know too much about this guy, but we know he was either a nobleman, and we do know he was really wealthy, because you had to have a lot of money to commission a project like this. So he takes somebody that, in his mind, has good research skills, Luke, the physician, and he commissions Luke to do the research and put together an account of Jesus' life and to do it in an orderly way so he can understand it. It's also important to notice from the introduction that Luke himself was not an eyewitness, but he interviewed eyewitnesses. And so what Luke did, he gets this commission from Theophilus, and he said, okay, I will go and investigate from people that were there, and I'll try to ascertain what Jesus said, what he did, and what difference it makes. And so he went and interviewed eyewitnesses. If you read Luke, you come to, you know, and it's Christmas is coming, you read that long nativity Christmas passage. Where did that come from? Well, our best guess is Luke sat down with Mary and said, Mary, tell me about that first Christmas. What happened? And Mary, that eyewitness, kind of explained what happened. As you go through, Luke was interviewing people that were alive at the time. They experienced the miracle. They heard Jesus' sermon, and he puts it together. The other Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. Matthew is also called Levi, right? He was the tax collector. Jesus calls him to be a follower. And Matthew was there. He heard what Jesus said. He saw what Jesus did. He recorded it. Mark was not an eyewitness, but Mark was the associate of Peter. Peter was an eyewitness. Mark traveled with Peter and probably recorded a lot of Peter's sermons. If you read the Gospel of Mark, it's lots of action, fast-moving and quick, just like Peter. 
Peter's preaching is most likely recorded in Mark. John was an eyewitness. Peter, James, and John making up the inner circle. And so the New Testament itself says, we were eyewitnesses, we interviewed eyewitnesses, and what you have in, in the Gospels, what you have in the Bible, it are eyewitness accounts of what took place and what difference it makes. You know, having eyewitnesses changes everything. For example, suppose I were to say to you, last Sunday morning, Jay and Jeff were handing out $100 bills in the atrium in between services. Now, immediately you'd be skeptical because you know they're both tightwads. How would that, would that legend, would that story have legs? No, because many of you were here last week and you didn't see Jeff and Jay handing out $100 bills. Oh, yeah, but it gets better when you name names. Suppose I were to say, Jeff gave Bill a $100 bill. Jay gave Mary a $100 bill. These three people, they received a $100 bill. All you would have to do to test the validity of that account would be to go to the people that were named and ask them if they got a $100 bill. If they said no, the story is done. There are no legs. Oh, yeah, by the way, Jeff Supp wasn't even here last week. He was in Maine at one of Michael's football games. You see, in order for the story to have legs and people are named in the account, eyewitnesses change everything. And so uh, those authors and others talk about the people that are named in the Gospels. So, for example, Jesus is making his way to Golgotha, to Calvary with the cross. Jesus is weary from all the beating and the, and the persecution and such he had experienced. They grab a guy in the crowd named Simon from Cyrene who has two kids, Alexander and Rufus. Simon carries Jesus' cross to Calvary. All you had to do was to talk to Simon, grab Rufus or Alexander, and ask him if that happened. You could check the account. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared after he was crucified to more than 500 people at the same time. Some of them have died, Paul says. Many of them are still living. If you don't believe me, go talk to the eyewitnesses. Malchus in the garden shows up with the crowd to arrest Jesus. Peter grabs his sword, swings for Malchus's neck, misses and cuts off his ear. Jesus reaches down and replaces the ear. If you don't believe that happened, go talk to Malchus and his wife. And his wife would say, what a plastic surgeon Jesus is. Look, no scars even. There were their names, right? Naming names. And so the objection that some people have, oh, the Bible was written so long after the events happened. No, no, no. The Bible itself says there were eye, that these are eyewitness accounts. People back then could have gone and talked with them, and the stories, the Gospels, Paul's letters would not have had legs if those events actually didn't happen. We have very old copies, you know, from the, you know, around 100 A.D. when those things were recorded. And so again, that objection doesn't count. Another objection that authors like to talk about in speaking about the reliability of the Bible is that doesn't the Bible um, contain lots of uh, strange, oppressive principles or tell us to do things that we would not do today? For example, um, doesn't the Bible talk a lot about polygamy? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and other people. They all had multiple wives. David, Solomon. 
does that mean, should we all move to Utah, right? And should we have multiple? No, no, no. Um, as you read the Bible, you discover that God's original intention was a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. It doesn't say be united to as many women as you can. And as you read through the Old Testament, you discover that polygamy always is dysfunctional. Those families are always being destroyed. There are problems in those families. The Bible's not supporting that practice. The Bible is actually sabotaging that practice. Um, a way to think about how things change in the Bible is to think of our storyline. Now, our storyline is not just some cute way for you to kind of understand the Bible. Our storyline is a way for you to understand the kind of book the Bible is. The Bible is a story that kind of traces out the history of human beings, right? The history of our world. But the story is unfolding. Things are happening in the Acts. In Act 1, God creates. When God creates, Adam and Eve are not clothed. They're naked and not ashamed. Well, when Act 2 comes and sin enters, enters the world, Adam and Eve are then clothed to cover their sin. That means we wear clothing today because we're not in Act 1. In Act 3, lots of rules and regulations come that are pictures of what's going to happen down the road. And so what happens? There are sacrifices in a temple. There are priests. There are candelabras. There are all of these feasts. They're not ends. They're means to the end. There are signs along the road. We're not in Act 3. We're in Act 5. The reality has come. The pictures were presented earlier. Think of it this way. The Godfather in Acts, right? Not, not these Acts on the screen, but think of the Godfather. In Act 1, you meet all the characters of the Godfather. In Act 2, Sonny gets killed at the toll booth. Just suppose in Act 5, toward the end of Godfather, Michael doesn't quite believe that Sonny's dead. Because he doesn't believe Act 2. So Sonny says to Clemenza, hey Clemenza, go get Sonny. I want to have dinner with Sonny. What does Clemenza say? Well, you want me to dig him up, bring the box? What do you want, Michael? No, no. The story has unfolded. It's a play. The act is continuing. And so there are a lot of things in the Bible that find their completion, find their culmination, find their destination in Jesus. And so some of that stuff, those rules, regulations, ceremonies, rituals, are now in, a, in another act because Jesus fulfills those things. Does that make sense? And so reliability, the Bible can be trusted. Well, how about oppressive practices like slavery? And there have been a lot of things written, you know, about slavery. You can check it out in some of those resources I mentioned. Okay, here's the point. Context is important. When I say slavery, I know, because we were all educated in the American school system, we think of United States slavery in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. That's what we all think of. But slavery in the New Testament, slavery in the Old Testament, was radically different than that. I'm not saying it was a great system. I'm just saying it was radically different. So, for example, slavery that we know of was race-based. Africans were brought from Africa. They were enslaved. African Americans born here, they were enslaved. Slavery in the first century, in the ancient world, it was not race-based. It was financially based. If you got into debt... You couldn't declare bankruptcy. If you got into debt, you or people that you, people that you were related to, you got sold into slavery and you worked off the debt. You know what that means? 
slaves in, in the ancient world, in Israel and in the New Testament, they received wages for their slave work. And when they earned enough, they could purchase their freedom. Oh yeah, and the Bible says that every seven years, the slaves were to be freed. And the Bible also says in Deuteronomy, 1 Timothy, kidnapping and slave trading are strictly forbidden. American slavery was based on kidnapping and slave trading. The Bible condemns those things. And so when somebody says, well, the Bible condones slavery, not as we know it. It was different. Well, here's one uh, more contemporary. What does the Bible say uh, about homosexuality? How does that fit with the Acts? Well, let me uh, put the pieces together. The example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus tell us that we are to love and serve all people. Regardless if they believe the same way we do, regardless if they have the same values, and regardless if they have the same view of sexuality. We are to love and serve all people. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus loved and served people that not only opposed him, they killed him. And he loved and served them. The Bible also tells us that our forgiveness and acceptance with God comes by grace and nothing else. Our forgiveness with God doesn't come because you believe all the right stuff. Our forgiveness with God doesn't come because you obey all the right stuff. Our forgiveness comes as a free gift when you trust Jesus for your forgiveness. You know what that means? There's no place in the Christian life for superiority, for arrogance, for looking down on someone, or for self-righteousness. And can I tell you? The homosexual community and the gay community has often suffered at the hands of Christians because Christians were not loving and serving, and Christians were self-righteously looking down their snooty, arrogant noses. We're not any better than anybody else. But the Bible also says that God invented sex to be between a man and a woman in the context of a loving, committed marriage. And those things run throughout the acts. Our attitude needs to be love and service. We need to be humbled because we know our sin better than we know anybody else's and there isn't this hierarchy of sin where some are worse than others and some are better than others. But God does say, I'm God and I designed you to experience fulfillment in life in a certain way. And if you don't live out that design, you won't experience life to its fullest. And so we need to understand where we are in the story. It helps us put it together and helps us make sense of what the Bible's saying. You can't make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And the Bible does not support lots of, uh, lots of oppressive, exploitive practices that sometimes we think it does. So that's kind of the reliability piece. The Bible's trustworthy. Check out those resources. Right? Check out Lee Strobel. Check out Tim Keller, Reason, of God, Reason for God. Check them out. If, if you're wrestling with that, I gave you a little flavor of what they say. You go check that out if those, are, if those things are interesting to you or if you know somebody that may be helped by that. Well, the second thing we want to talk about is not just reliability. It's authority. Authority. It's one thing to believe the Bible's reliable and truthful. It's another thing to figure out what role it needs to play in your, in your life. You can believe it's true, but you just don't give a darn, right? It doesn't matter what it says. Yeah, it may be true, so what? Authority is the question of, how should I live in reference to what the Bible says? 
Well, here's how Peter says it in his second letter. Now, remember, in his first set of verses here, you're going to see the eyewitness deal again. Peter writes, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He then goes on to describe the transfiguration. So remember that on the mountain, right? Jesus um, is transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John, along with Elijah and Moses. That's what Peter's referring to here. So he says it like this. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. We were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says, I was an eyewitness. I was there. And if you don't believe me, ask Peter and John. Maybe you think I lied. Check out, check the story with them. The next few verses um, move more toward the authority issue. Trustworthy, reliable. Above all, Peter writes, you must, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that God so worked in people's lives, in their history, in their experience, in their personality, that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written. Now, God didn't dictate to them exactly what he wanted said. When you read Peter, you know you're not reading John. When you read John, you know you're not reading Luke. When you read Luke, you know you're not reading Paul. Their personalities come through, their vocabulary, their dialect. It's all there. It's all different. And yet, the result is exactly what God wanted said. So when we read the Bible, we're reading God's Word. That's why lots of people refer to the Bible as God's Word. Because the prophets and apostles, those that authored the Scripture, were moved along by the Spirit, and the result is they wrote exactly what God wanted written. Now, how does authority work? Well, authority works like this. The author has authority to say how things work and how they don't work. Yesterday I drove my uh, son-in-law's car from Hatfield to Lancaster. And as uh, I get in Lancaster, I get off and I figure, you know what, he needs gas. Surprise, surprise, he needs gas. So I figure, let me stop and get gas in his car. So I stop and I pull in, since I'm in Lancaster, I pull into a sheets to get gas. And I look down on the, you know, below the steering wheel and that whatever it's called, the dashboard or whatever there, where the button should be to press to release the gas cap, because that's where the button to release the gas cap is in my car. I look down, and there is no button to release the gas cap. Well, my daughter has a car, and her button is kind of on the door. So I look on the door. There's no button on the door. There's no button on the dash, no button on the door. I look outside. There's no little thing. How in the world am I going to go? Well, I guess I'm not buying him gas. Hope I have enough to make it to his house. I'm all ready to go into the sheets to ask someone inside, how in the world I open the gas, you know, the little door, the little trap door there in order to get to the gas thing. When I walk out, I just kind of punch the thing, and lo and behold, that must have kind of disarmed, and it opens. It's one of those push things, right? You kind of push it, it opens, you push it, it closes. Now, who in their right mind would design a trap door like that? You're supposed to have a button on the dashboard to release the gas thing, or at least on the door. You don't push the thing, you just need to be a button. But you know what? The manufacturer of the car has the right to tell you how to open the trap door for gas any way the author wants you to do it. Now you may be saying, I don't like that plan. You know what? I'm going to put any kind of fuel or liquid I want in the gas tank of that car. It's America. You are free to do that. All right? 
Don't put chocolate syrup in your gas tank in the church parking lot, all right? You go home to your, your driveway and you do that. You can put anything you want in the gas tank. You never have to change your oil if you don't want to. You may say, well, you know what? I want to I take care of my car the most convenient, inexpensive way possible. Go for it. Go for it. Payday's coming, right? That's all. Payday's coming. Well, that's kind of how authority works, right? The author has authority. Since God is the author of life and the author of human life, he has the authority to say, here's how I designed you. Here's how I want life to go. Here's how you'll find fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in life. Live it like this. Now, you can choose to live differently. Payday's coming because the author has authority. See how that works? Oh, yeah, and here's something else when it comes to authority. Jesus believed the full authority of the Bible. I find it uh, not only ironic, I find it kind of strange where people sometimes will say, well, I believe in Jesus and I follow Jesus. I just don't really trust a lot of stuff in the Bible. Huh, kind of weird. So you're following Jesus, and Jesus based his entire life, his mission, and centered everything he did and said on what the Bible says. So you are denying the authority on which Jesus based his life, found his identity, and fulfilled his mission. You're denying the center of what Jesus was doing, but you want to follow Jesus. I'm not sure how that works. I don't think that does work. Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture. We believe in Jesus. We believe in the reliability. The gospel writers, the writers of the New Testament, tell us who he is and what he said, and they validate that Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and that fact then, presented by those reliable authors, should say, well, if Jesus' authority was the Scripture, and I'm following Jesus based on the reliable witnesses of, of the Scripture, I will believe the authority, and I'll submit to it. Now, here's what that means. Sometimes the Bible's going to ask you to do things that don't make sense to you. And sometimes, you know, God, through the Scripture, is going to tell you to do something that you don't want to do. And you may not like that, okay? Can I just say, if you don't really like that, you hate that, don't ever raise kids. Because when you raise kids, you're always reminded of the fact that as their parent, you know more than they know. And so your little three-year-old likes to get into a why argument with you as to why he shouldn't do, the, do this or why she shouldn't do that. Well, you know what? If you're like 38 years old or 40 years old, you're a little wiser than your three- or four-year-old. But the little three- or four-year-old can't really understand it. But can I say... There's a small, finite difference between the wisdom of a four-year-old and a 35-year-old. There's an infinite difference in wisdom between a 40-year-old and God. Don't you think that somewhere in that infinite, infinite distance in wisdom that God's going to say some things that you don't understand and God's going to ask you to do some things that you disagree with? Of course he is. Submit to the authority of Scripture just like Jesus did. That's a wise decision. Well, lastly, purpose. Like, what's the purpose of the Bible? Uh, let me uh, take a second just to share with you how important this is. If you miss the point and purpose of the Bible, the Bible will actually be destructive, not beneficial. If you miss the point and the purpose, the Bible will work to destroy you not to grow you. You see, if you see the Bible nothing more as a collection of do's and don'ts, 
If you see the Bible as a whole long list of stuff you have to believe, and you've got to jump through all the doing hoops and stay away from all the don't hoops, well, if you begin to think you can and you're doing a half-decent job of that, you're probably brain dead if you think you're doing that good. You're not understanding. But if you think you're doing pretty well at that, you'll be full of pride, you'll be full of arrogance, you'll feel superior and look down your nose at other people. That's not the destination God wants. If you're more accurate in your understanding of the Bible, but you miss the point and the purpose, you'll feel crushed by what the Bible says. You'll realize what a miserable failure and screw-up you are, and the Bible will destroy you. You see, if you don't understand the point and the purpose, you're going to miss the big picture, and the Bible becomes a destructive force rather than a positive force. Well, what's the point and the purpose? Okay, here it is. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to him. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point of the Bible is Jesus. Its purpose is to lead us to him. So at the end of Luke's gospel, right? we looked at the beginning, here's how the end works. There are a couple of disciples, followers of Jesus, headed back to their hometown probably in Emmaus. They don't know that Jesus is raised from the dead. They're beginning to hear those rumors, but they're not believing it. And their lives have been sapped of all hope. Their lives are, I mean, they're downcast. They're depressed. Here's what we read. Jesus, Jesus shows up and he's walking with them. And Jesus says, that, so what's the problem, guys? Why are you like so, so depressed? What's the problem? They then say, Jesus of Nazareth was a, was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. We thought he was going to redeem Israel, but they killed him. There's no hope in their lives. There's no joy. There's no liberation. There's no freedom. There's no rescue. They're hopeless. Well, as the account goes on, listen to what Jesus says. How foolish you are. How slow to believe what the prophets have said. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And look at this sentence. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus walks them through the Old Testament, beginning with Moses. That's the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch. All the way through the prophets, through Malachi. And Jesus explains to them, guys, you're missing the point and the purpose. The point of the scripture is me. It's pointing to me, and its purpose is to lead you to me. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at that back in the spring, Jesus says it this way, I came to fulfill the Scripture. Now, what does fulfill mean? Well, if you take the two parts of that and flip them, I think you kind of can understand a little better. To fulfill is to fill full. Jesus comes to fill full the Scripture. Now, Eagles don't play today, but the Ryder Cup does. And suppose you're sitting uh, watching the Ryder Cup and your wife wants to score a few points with you and she says to you, how about if I bring you a snack and something to eat? At first you wonder if you're in the right house and check